Good morning, Trinity Bible Church. Thank you for being here, those who are visiting, uh, family or friends. Uh, We are continuing in the Gospel according to Matthew. This morning we will be primarily in chapter 21, starting in verse 18. Uh, a quick, sorry, a quick announcement beforehand. The the Saturday morning, this Saturday morning is is actually Saturday at 8 a.m. Um, I was told it says 8 p.m. in the bulletin. Saturday morning at 8 a.m. The men uh, men's book study is starting uh, here. It'll be upstairs uh, in the uh, the youth area, where we'll be beginning our discussion on the book "The Enemy Within" by Kurt Lungard. And so, if uh, an email was sent out this week with a link. Um, I'll send a reminder out tomorrow as well, and probably another reminder Saturday at 7 a.m. that it's here at, at 8 o'clock. So uh, we'll begin that. The, that'll be the, the first book we'll be covering. The idea would be to actually go through the trilogy this year, covering the totality of the Christian life. Uh, the second book is called The Disciplined Mind, um, and the third book is called The Glorious Christ, which one of our Fellowship Groups is actually going through right now. Anyway, I just wanted to make the correction at, at, that it's at 8 a.m. Saturday. Now, uh, we will be in uh, the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, as we continue. Uh, we've just left uh, last week uh, in verse 17, so today we'll be covering verses 18 through 22. We're in an interesting portion of, of the Gospel as as Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and we, we went through the, the, uh, his reception there, which, which uh, I believe a better view of that would be that that procession was a lamentful event. And, and, as, and as we've, if for those that have been here through all of our covering of Matthew, you'll see this, this the kingdom being the primary kind of idea being put forth, the kingdom. And this kingdom was not a, while it was a new thing, it was, it was an old thing. And it was a, there was continuity, the reason of John the Baptist being this, this final prophet of the old covenant, bridging the gap between the old and the new, and Jesus being representative of the new covenant, but, but showing that, that all of it, predominantly from the words of Christ, all of it was always about Christ, all of it that we were looking forward to from the generations past all the way to where we are here and now is, is all hope is put on the God-man, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is the Christ. And so this story is continuing and the continuity between what we call the Old Testament and the New is rock solid and its foundation is at the beginning and the end the Alpha and Omega, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so as we have seen throughout this this gospel account, is this kingdom, and this kingdom is here and it's inaugurated or it's begun with Jesus coming in the flesh. And he's called some to himself, his own, his disciples, particularly those who become apostles. The apostles are front and center for almost every single interaction that we see in this account and the other gospel accounts. Sometimes they're on the sidelines, meaning sometimes they're watching as Jesus is healing or teaching or having a conflict with those who would seek to harm Christ. 
And other times he takes them aside and gives them specific lessons, perhaps related to something he said or something he did or something that was about to happen. And on and on the disciples, we see them following Jesus and they're confronted oftentimes with their own lack of faith, their own lack of belief. And they're seen really often as no different in their unbelief than even, say, his adversaries. Yet these are his, ones he's chosen for himself, ones he is forming to actually continue the work of the kingdom. And when Christ, letting them know on on a few occasions now, here's what I'm going to do. When we get to Jerusalem, he doesn't say, I will go and sit on a throne and will throw off the, ro- the yoke of Rome and any other foreign nation that might come up because now is my time. Israel will cast off the nations and reign over them. No, he tells them, I now go after fulfilling all of the old covenant scriptures pointing to him, beginning with, where he was born, how he was born, the signs that would come during that birth, during the, the manner in which even as a child he was, he was the, articulating a, a type of understanding of the law that confounded the teachers, having a forerunner come before him like Elijah come again, who was calling the people to repent because the kingdom was near, and then coming and showing things that no one had ever done, teaching things no one had ever heard, in order to show the people this kingdom is here and now I am Messiah. And through all of that, these disciples, his own, his chosen are with him and he tells them the following, now I go to die. And I must die. I go to be humiliated, and I must be humiliated. The disciples rebel at first, no, no, Lord. And he rebukes them. And he has to tell them and reinforce it a couple other times. And so when we read a few weeks ago the triumphal entry, it's on the back of all of those events where he comes in and they're celebrating. You have to imagine at the very least These, his chosen one, his disciples, the ones who would become the apostles and lead the church, had to be at least in some way going, this is what he deserves. This adoration, this. And yet we see in all of it, it wasn't real. Crowds were there for a show. And and the Gospel of John says he weeps when he looks at Jerusalem. And then we see the reality of that is the first thing that he does is he goes in. He goes as any ruler would to the temple and instead of offering a sacrifice or teaching or or calling adoration for the priesthood, he quotes Jeremiah and tells them this is in essence, in paraphrase, an unfaithful generation. Just like the generation that was there during the preaching of Jeremiah, to where Jerusalem would be destroyed. He's showing them there's one thing, there there is continuity with those who were called to be prepared for my coming. 
just like in the time of the prophets, just as they are now, they are faithless. And that condemnation falls on all of those who do not believe, but especially at this time to those who were supposed to be prepared. Such is the nature of the effect of sin on humanity. Such is the insanity that is unbelief. The, the, the rebellion of the flesh. The rebellion of the created against the creator. And so Jesus comes and there are his chosen. They're with him. And they watch him teach a couple more times. After the turning of the tables, the condemnation of the, the religious, the lack of any type of religious affection for God. And he leaves and goes to Bethany, which is slightly east and slightly south of Jerusalem. And that's where he leaves and that's where we pick up. And no longer with the crowds, no longer with the adversaries, but at one more time, an intimate moment coming up, teaching time for these ones who have been with him. So as we read 18 through 22, all of that is in the background and moving forward. And as I read this morning, as usual, I will read out loud and give you an opportunity to pray silently after the reading. And then after the reading, I'll pray corporately for us as we enter into the time of the ministry of the word. Reading now from Matthew 18 through 22. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. He said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please take this time to pray. Heavenly Father, as we, the church, gather here on the Lord's Day, we come today being reminded of the blessed hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
This day, the Lord's Day, is a day of celebration. No matter how we are confronted by our own sinfulness, no matter how we might be in a place in our life right now of of mournfulness and fear and dread, or even a malaise or, or a place where we feel like God's not with us. Lord, we're here today as as those who are united with one another through our shared union with Christ by the power of God, the Holy Spirit, who indwells His people. Taking all the conditions of fallen man while a believer yet redeemed, yet still fighting at war with the flesh. And for all of those here today, God, I pray Your Word, I pray our prayers, our songs of praise, and our fellowship of the saints would raise their hearts and minds to the blessed hope of our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He mourns with those who are in mourning, celebrates with those who celebrate. The Spirit calls those to repentance who find themselves astray, Lord, may you do a great work on the hearts of your people this day through your word. May you illuminate our minds to the truth of the word. And that by the power of the Spirit, which is at work sanctifying us, creating us more and more in the image of Christ inwardly as we yearn for the day, that we will be united no longer with this fallen, sinful flesh, but with a holy in pure flesh, and the resurrection of the dead. Until such a time, find your people faithful, Lord. Let us understand your mercy and your grace in its overwhelming abundance. Break in us our almost incessant need of idolatry. Transform us to those who, whose first thoughts, last thoughts, and every thought in any situation in life, no matter how seemingly good or bad, turns to you, Lord. We cry out, please, God. We celebrate, thank you, Lord, no matter where we are. Let us be reminded as he reminds his disciples today. The glory of who He is, God Almighty, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. The one who came in humiliation and took our curse and our death will one day return and crown us in glory. Until such a time, may we be found faithful. We pray all this time in Christ's name. Amen. Sometimes when you prepare for a passage, you're prepared, a lot of prepare, you're prepared for some of the things you're going to come across in other people's opinions of that passage. And the more complex the passage, you're always ready, okay, there's going to be some weird things coming at me this week that I read. 
And then you come to some seemingly straightforward and mundane passages where you are not prepared for that and you find about all the contention throughout the history of the church about a fig tree. And you go, certainly. This person was really hungry when they wrote this or angry or something. Yes, believe it or not, before I begin, I have to do away with what I believe is a list of the worst interpretations of what this is. And if these are some you hold to, as always, uh, you may email me or call me on Monday. You may not charge the mound. You may not do any of those kind of things today. Or I, I ask you not to. If you, I see you charging, I'm not very good fast anymore that way, but I still have pretty quick lateral movement. Don't test that, please. It says, in the morning, as he returning from the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, Matthew's account of this is markedly different while having a lot of similarities to the Mark account of this interaction. Meaning Mark's account has a little bit more detail to it. But, but by and large, it's the same account and the same event. Uh, and so this is a pretty simple thing. That to, to lay the imagery of where they are, they're coming from Bethany because that's where they left after the conflict Jesus had at the temple and the teaching. And they go to Bethany, as I mentioned earlier, which is a little bit south and a little bit east of Jerusalem. And so now he and the disciples, are, who would become the apostles, are leaving from Bethany and heading back to Jerusalem, right to the north, predominantly kind of between the two, those two cities, is the Mount of Olives. And so you have in the backdrop of the whole story, not just the fig tree, but what comes later about the mountains, you have before them the Mount of Olives, you have, they're going to Jerusalem, and now they're walking from Bethany, the whole overview of what's happened so far has been about faithlessness. Everything they interacted with outside of the man with the donkey and the colt, what they saw in Jerusalem was faithlessness. Even the children who would not stop singing and the leaders tried to rebuke them for singing. Teacher, do you hear what they're singing? Yes. I do. The reality is, is now as he's going, it's time where he's going to teach his disciples something using this fig tree. Now, one of the weirdest things I read this week about the fig tree was that Jesus knew, because it was the spring, that the figs, weren't actually ready to be eaten yet. And so because of that, it wasn't a fair lesson because he knew there would be no figs on the tree. So the whole premise becomes like, wait, are you trying to see Jesus was lying? No, 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 that's what they said. They said, but, but he, it wasn't actually about the figs. And then there's like this inability to interact with what you'll see, I think the proper view is, that Israel... An unfaithful Israel, more than on one occasion in the Old Testament, is called a fig tree that bears no fruit. I'm giving it away a little bit. And yet, 
there was this idea that, oh, it was just this, Jesus was, was kidding around. The other weird view, and again, this just gives you the scope of maybe what you read. And when you're looking at this, you're looking at not just who agrees with your exposition, but critically those who have disagreed throughout history. So these are the critical, weird people that sometimes you, you read. Now you guys are like, why are you reading the weird people? Well, because you have to know what they believe so you can dismiss it like I'm doing this morning so that you don't, when you hear it, you're like, oh, I should dismiss that because Ken said so. <laughs> no, because you have the ability to critically reason and look at the scriptures yourself, and that is, that is the hope. Um, an even stranger one is that Jesus is angry about the interaction that happened in Jerusalem. And so like it's Jesus, if you can picture it, who's fuming. And like Moses hitting the rock instead of talking to it, he decides to kill a tree. That's a real interpretation of this verse. And so then the lesson became, even Jesus is susceptible to losing his temper. <laughs> Sorry. That also is not that also is a wrong view. If you hold that view, and like say maybe you go get one of those fun, the legal flamethrowers, and you just like, Jesus didn't like trees, and just start, no, that's, that's not the point. The fig tree is representative, the position I hold to, and I believe that is the clearest rendering of how this gospel has been written. As we've noticed before in chapter 17, it talks about moving mountains, and we'll see that that's again. And when we went over that, it talked about, hey, um, literary devices were used prior to the time you were born, meaning like, like allegory was a common thing in all civilizations. So the idea of pointing to a mountain when you see a mountain right there and talking about faith and the lack of faith being centered to everything that's happening in Jerusalem, like if you have faith, even if is to show you like if you have something the size of a seed, the size of a seed, even faith like that, if it's centered on God's kingdom and Christ, who is the redeemer, something that small can the mountain is as if nothing to that in the same manner both in particularly in Jeremiah, but used elsewhere in the Old Testament, whereas Hosea, Israel is called a fig tree that bears no fruit. Do you see it? And often we know we only have to look at other gospels. As one Jesus will, will refer to himself as a certain type of vegetation. I am the what? The vine. And so here we have what is in complete continuity with the old covenant way in which Israel was referred often to animals, plants, stones, and all these different things that had to do with Israel, and in particular, either their complete unbelief or their faithlessness or their small faith, they were often used as these literary examples so that the people would understand. So when Jesus and his disciples are now walking from Bethany back to Jerusalem and there's a fig tree and Jesus walks up to it. By the way, there was a really good theologian in the 1930s who went to Israel and he was a New Testament scholar and he was in Israel, and he took a picture of children picking a fig tree 
during Passover time in order to refute a colleague of his who held to the weird Jesus was just telling a funny story. And the picture is beautiful. It's these big fat figs on the tree and there's literally kids sitting under them eating them. And he's like, not to debunk your ideas, but you are wrong. And so Jesus goes to this fig tree because he's hungry. And what he finds on it, think about this, is not even unripened fruit, but no fruit at all. Another, another interaction, you get to talk again. What's the purpose of a fruit tree? It's to grow what? Fruit, right? And so the fact that Jesus, in this sovereign, providential moment, coming out of one case out of faithlessness out of, after another. And his triumphal entry is a perversion of how he was supposed to be deli- seen as the king by the people supposed to be waiting for him. He points to this tree whose whole purpose is to bear fruit. And it has none. <clears throat> I'm going to read a couple of verses before I continue, just so you don't think I'm just making stuff up. If you look at Micah 7, 1 through 6, you don't have to. I'm going to read through it quickly. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat. No first ripe fig that my soul desires. Listen to the next part. The godly has perished from the earth, and there was no one upright among mankind. Using that, that imagery or similar imagery, and this is what I think is an even more, more interesting thing, is when Jesus was using uh, Jeremiah 7 to, to talk about evil in the land and what we read last week when he overturns um, the moneylenders' tables and, and knocks over the seats, I'm sorry, knocks over the seats of, the, of, of those collecting the, the money and he quotes from Jeremiah 7. Well, in Jeremiah 8, we also have something that's it's pretty similar to what we just read in Micah. <clears throat> It says the following in 8, 13, or going up to 11. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Israel is is the fig tree. His chosen one, his disciples are with him. He goes up to take a fruit from a tree designed to bear fruit, and it has none. See, that was the whole purpose of the city on the hill as they're approaching it. 
And there is Zion, Temple Mount. They've just come from there. In the very center of the place that where, where God was supposed to be glorified among the nations, what does Jesus find? What does God himself find? They don't even know me. So he calls judgment on them. And now he points to the reality that not just that this is a fruitless people, a faithless people, but both of these Old Testament verses are tied to a coming judgment. So when Jesus is, is proceeding towards willingly dying as a criminal, willingly taking on the curse of God for his people. He's telling his disciples, this place where we're going now has nothing. There is no fruit. And when he curses the tree and it withers in an instant, he too is calling judgment on the faithless of Israel. And he's using this faithlessness as a contrast to the type of faith that these disciples are not. I was going to say it. I'm trying to say it more nicely. So far, the disciples have not shown much faith at all. Is there agreement to that? There's times of great faith, there's times of moments of confession, and yet we're amazed and marveled over and over again as they're like, what is that teaching? Why is that teaching? It's been three years, guys. Showing, again, the effect or the power of sin. But here now, he points to this tree. May no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? In Mark's account, Peter's the one who finds it. and says, Look, the fig tree's withered completely. And again, we're not supposed to stop and go like, You've seen way cooler stuff than this, guys. Like, why are you amazed at the fig tree? But they're amazed at the fact that, that Messiah, with a word withers a tree. It's, it's, it's a moment of judgment and condemnation. Again, it's not because Jesus hates trees. It's not because of any other reason other than the reality of the judgment that was going to come on unbelief. And, and it's a microcosm of the reality of the final judgment that will come on unbelief. And it's, a, and it's supposed to be a contrast to these disciples who now have to, at the very least, be reckoning with the idea that he's going. Jesus already told us he's going. He's going to die and be buried and rise again and then go back to his father's side. And then guess what? It's just us? So this is what he tells them. They marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once and Jesus answered them truly I say to you if you have faith and do not doubt you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree 
But even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now imagine that. You're the twelve. You've been with Jesus for three years now. He's told you enough times what's about to happen that at the very least it has to be before their mind. You've seen him do the incredible. From giving sight to the blind, cleansing leprosy, raising the dead, confounding the teachers of Israel. Even at one point, you were given power to go out, share his message, and were able to do some of those things yourself. So this isn't a group of people who haven't, have no understanding of, of how Jesus is and the power he holds and the clarity, at least at purpose, of most of the time that this is Messiah. We've already confessed that. And so now he curses a fig tree. The fig, the fig tree represents Israel. And now as they're looking, they're looking at the Mount of Olives. And he tells them, this is, this is nothing. And this isn't the first time. The, the, during the Beatitudes, he talks about faith. In chapter 17, when the mountain is used as an illustration, again, he's talked about faith. And so he's telling his, who would become his apostles, he's not saying, don't be like this fig tree. Don't be like Israel. He's telling them, you're going to be different. He's not telling them you need to work harder than Israel in their unbelief. He's letting them know, I'm about to do something. God's about to do something that's going to make it possible for where those who are mine, who are called by my name, are going to do greater things. Because when he leaves, he's sending the helper. And when he and Father send the Spirit, and the Spirit indwells the church, the church is now empowered by God himself. So when he tells them, even you, he's not, again, because of what Jesus is going to do, the church is going to be able to do. How is the gospel spread amongst the nations? to where people go to tribes and nations. Paul, once a murderer and a persecutor of the church, will go all around the Mediterranean and share the gospel, and people will come to faith. Paul himself will say it's not because he looked impressive, and it's not because he spoke well. Why was it? It was because the power of the Spirit, because Christ has inaugurated the kingdom, and the kingdom will advance, and the kingdom will come to the place where Christ is is sending it by the power of the Spirit. He's letting the contrast of faithlessness and letting the disciples, again, at this point, they don't know. The things you are going to do are going to exhibit your faith because of what Christ will do on the cross, because of the Spirit indwelling those who are in Christ. How is it that a Christian man and woman stays almost in stasis, in a place of inaction? It can only be because we forget 
that it's not about us. It's about Christ. All the power you need is already in you. Meaning, the power to put to death sin in your life. Yes, you have to flee from temptation. But the one who is strengthening you and reforming you is the Holy Spirit with whom you work in unison with. The Spirit leads and guides, gives you a a means out of whatever the situation is, and you flee. And in doing so, you grow. Not inaction, but action. In the same manner, if you find yourself in a place, I can't remember the last time I opened my Bible. Well, how's that possible? I know people are busy, but you're that busy? You can't read 15 minutes? You don't have 15 minutes. Wake up 15 minutes earlier. Go to bed 15 minutes later. Why? Because the Word is life. And the Spirit forms you by your reading and understanding and hearing and understanding because your hearing and your reading The Spirit is molding and fusing that word in you so that when you do have these situations I mentioned in prayer, times of mourning, times of fear, times of failure, that word comes to your mind because you've been in it. The Spirit reminds you and enlivens you to the truth of the word. And the faithful, whom Christ has empowered, can be victorious. Not in a shallow way that's so often preached since the early 1900s when it comes to these verses. If you have faith, you'll move mountains. That means go to the bank and just say, I claim a million dollars. And then the bank teller informs you. I'm afraid you're thinking of someone else's account. Or as another, when I was in school... Uh, an account of, of, of a guy saying he went to a car dealership and put his hand in a car, and I claim this car. And the financial officer at the car dealership informed him that his credit had not been talked to by the Holy Spirit, evidently, because that also was not true. The shallowness of how we look at these verses shows the value that we have on what it means to be a Christian. It is not to be enriched. If you do well, good for you. I hope you use it for for God's purposes and, and he's done it for a reason because you're faithful. Awesome. But the reality is this verses, these verses in particular, are in contrast to a faithless people and, and to the church who would inherit all the blessings of the Holy Spirit and all the reality of the gospel and the completion, the beginning of the kingdom, and given the blessed hope that this one, this Jesus, while walking and talking with his initial group of apostles about this faith that they would inherit, that he would give them because they were his. And now the church, we stand in that promise. We are not the faithless. We are not the fig tree. We are 
Christ's. He is, through the Spirit, producing fruit in you. You, as His own, are called to do a few things in life. Live quietly. Reflect His goodness, His grace, His mercy. When given the opportunity, share His goodness with those who are put in your life. When given the opportunity, if you are older in the faith, identifying someone who is new to the faith, taking them under your wing, putting them in your life, helping them grow in their faith so that they might repeat that in their own life. And then through the ups and downs, generally more downs than ups as living in a fallen world, suffused with sin, to remember this isn't our home. That great, beautiful building they were looking at on the hill as they also saw the Mount of Olives, they could see it and know its history and know what they were taught by it. And Jesus is telling them, that's not going to be here very long. 40 years, that won't even be here anymore. We haven't got there yet, but that'll be his last prophecy he will give. That beautiful building, not one stone. The withered fig tree, the end of sacrificial system, the end of temple. Why? Greater than the temple is here now. Greater than the sacrificial system is here now. The one true Passover lamb and high priest and every shadow that was the Old Testament system is fulfilled in Christ. And he comes to tell this faithless people, do away with it. John was warning them, here he comes. Jesus is saying, here I am. And as he's on the cross, being mocked and ridiculed, the criminal next to him, will be told, paradise awaits you because of me. Christ calls the faithful to always be reminded that their faith and their power and their ability to do anything in life for his purpose comes from him and through him and ultimately is for his glory. We all have to be reminded we all get stuck in these, these aspects of life where we're like, we're down and this has happened and this has happened. Hold on, take a look. The creator of all things chose you for the purpose of bringing glory to his name, gave you the power to do so through the spirit and his word, put you in a sacred assembly of those also who were chosen by him and powered by him, whom he died for and took the curse for, and now gathered you all together for one reason. Glorify his name and lifting one another up in different ways, both through admonition, compassion, teaching, on and on. And this cycle repeats as we live our quiet lives dedicated to Christ in anticipation of the time 
when we will be reunited with him and one another in glory. Even your faith. Let me change that. Especially your faith. You need to be reminded. Is a gift from God. Not your own work. God gave you. The ability. To have faith. In him. When the apostles are given the Holy Spirit, see the transformation of the apostles who fled and lied and did everything they could when Jesus was arrested to the apostles who preached before thousands. You murdered the Lord, the one you were waiting for. And when a few cry out, what must we do? believe we are here as the faithful i pray that you take fast this account of the gift of faith the gift of christ and the power of the holy spirit for the faithful you have with one another all you need to live a life in a fallen world in anticipation of the return of the risen Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. We pray, God, that we would use us, the church, to remind one another in our times of need, our times of doubt, sorrow. Of your great love. Lord, strengthen us as we go out this week into this fallen world. That should not surprise us that in all ways almost seeks to usurp your authority and power. And the idle factories of our hearts are are so quick to go, oh yes, that, that sounds good. Oh yes, please. Lord, strengthen us by the Spirit. Discipline our minds through the reading of the Word and prayer and fasting and the fellowship of the saints that we would be about your glory. Lord, we thank you for your incalculable love and grace and mercy. The one true and perfect Holy One who took our curse and our punishment and our judgment and now intercedes on our behalf in whom one day, one day, we will fully and truly see face to face. 
Lord, may this worship bring glory to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.